Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you, the beloved listener of Beyond Governance Show. My name is Nimrat Mbele, and welcome to it. I hope uh, all is well, despite the chill weather. Uh, it is that time of the year where everyone is called upon to extend their generosity slightly a little bit more by donating, you know, blankets, uh, food uh, to the needy. I promise you, every gesture or gesture makes a huge difference, as most people are quite vulnerable. I often say, uh, you know, uh, if if you can't help, well, I suppose everyone should help as much as they can, but if you cannot help, uh, do not harm or do not hurt anybody. As always, I'm delighted to share this space and time with you as we navigate very turbulent waters of our very complex and complicated leadership and management world. In the main, I strive to bring along very esteemed guests who have a much wealth of wealth of experience, experience in dealing with a whole lot of complicated governance-related issues. In our last encounter, I gave you nuggets of malfeasance we are seeing in our public universities, and then I promised you that I would bring a thought leader, a strategist, and a governance practitioner in the name of Professor Patrick Fitzgerald. And guess what? It is happening. And before I get to the gist of my conversation with a good prof here, whom I've had the privilege of being taught by at Vets University uh, a while ago, a quick reflection. We had a, a very interesting conversation with the chairperson of Rainwater, uh, Mr. Ramati Munyokolo, who gave us very intriguing insights about um, his new role as a chairperson. And he's really, well, in my view, a fit and proper individuals with a huge responsibilities lying on his shoulders, the chairperson of the board. But obviously, this is a collective and he has to navigate those waters through his board. If you missed that particular show, not to worry, simply go to our website, which is www.hirefrom.com. Download that particular podcast or any podcast for that matter. And should you come across any issue, as you often do, just simply drop us an SMS, our line is 34519. And of course, your thoughts and views are most welcome via my Twitter handle, which is at Dr. Mary. Before we as get into real interesting part, it's uh, customary for us here at HiFM to give a word of thanks to the producers of the show who really make it will happen. On that note, um, I want to thank Harissa Kelly. I also want to thank uh, Vusi Masinga for helping to navigate the show. They are doing a sterling work. And without them, we will not be able to bring this, this really interesting conversation that I'm about to have now. And once again, as I've indicated, I'm having a conversation with uh, Professor Patrick Fitzgerald, and I do implore you to make yours, those kinds of uh, insights, observations, and questions, for I know uh, they are quite a, a few, uh, particularly when you have a conversation with, with a man of his stature. Once again, our SMS line is 34519, and of course, I'm available at Twitter, which is at Dr. Bennett. You know, just setting the scene before we get to the conversation, we all know that the universities play an important role in teaching and learning. 
researchers and technology, they are in the main considered to have regarded um, or they've been regarded as key institution in process of social change and development, which means they need to breed a particular crop of leaders that understand shared values, leaders who understand ethics as a precursor for economic development. What we're seeing or hearing about is deeply concerning. In making sense of this conundrum, like I said, I'm joined by Patrick. Just a quick bio of, of Patrick, which he did no introduction to so many of us. But be that as may, there always be that person who just joined us for the first time. In the context of our conversation, uh, he was appointed administrator after two concerns were, were dissolved, that of Limpopo and Val University of Technology. He was also the founding chairperson of the Walter Sassoli University, overseeing the major there. He was also internal member of the Vets Council during his term as the Deputy Vice Chancellor responsible for finance and operation. He also facilitated a statute, new, a new statute at Limpopo and Val University of Technology to improve the very essence of the issues that we want to talk about, that is of governance. He's currently the program leader at the helm, which is part of University of South Africa's collaborative organization of all public universities. Uh, without any waste of time, let me give this opportunity to introduce my guest, uh, Prof. Once again, good morning to Beyond Governance and welcome. Yes, good morning. Nice to be talking to you again, Nimrod, after all these years. Absolutely, absolutely. As I said before we went to air, I've had the privilege of being taught by yourself and I always reminiscence about, you know, your different uh, approach to life and how you talk about this. <laughs> Be that is me, Prof. I mean, I've already set the scene about the kind of mischief that we're hearing about and which is quite disturbing. But your overall uh, essence about the kinds of issues that you're picking up, are they so vast that warrants us to be worried about or they're just, and of course, about 25 universities in the country. In the last time I checked, almost every other four, five or six have had issues relating to governance. So is this a norm or is just a one of those incidences? Your overall observation before you get to integrities of what is it that you're dealing with? Well, we have many things to be worried about currently in South Africa and it may be that we should be slightly worried about university governance. However, I believe there's a kind of paradox here, and you have expertise in this realm, and you may agree or disagree, but I would regard that public university sector as actually one of the best functioning parts of the South African public sector in general. That may sound strange given that there is all these governance and in some instances might, one might say leadership and management issues hitting the media and it is definitely the case that there are these crises and there's room for improvement but actually the public universities in South Africa have held up very well although they've been subjected to all kinds of pressure tests they've had to transform incredibly in terms of student participation, both in equity terms and in sheer numbers. Uh, they've had to transform their academic staff. They've had to become fit for purpose, moving away from the role they used to play under a previous dispensation into trying to become the accelerators of economic progress, social justice in our developing democracy or our attempt 
to develop our democracy. So I think this is, you said complicated, I might say complex. Universities are, in a way, the jewel of our developmental crown. They are performing exceptionally well, even in terms of international comparisons to countries of similar emerging economy status. They have, some people may believe otherwise, but the statistics indicate their global standing has very much improved since apartheid. For example, in terms of our percentage of international research publications. So universities are very important. They are performing. They are, in many ways, they are performing. Of course, they could do better. They actually represent the hope of positioning South Africa as a player and and um, an entity that can succeed in this emerging uh, global digital economy that we live now in, this volatile, exceptional, new 21st century state, and we need them to perform. But we have these governance issues, and we have to perhaps assess them. We have to try to remedy them. Various things have been tried and are still being tried, but somehow these issues are still cropping up at our institutions. Absolutely. Prof, I think you've hit it on a nail in really setting up the scene, which is quite useful. Uh, we're going to have to pay our, our bills. Let's go to break and come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back, if you just join us. Uh, we haven't really lost quite a bit. I am in conversation with Patrick Fitzgerald, um, the former vice chancellor responsible for finance and operation at West University amongst uh, his many accolades. Um, before we took that quick break, he was really giving us a high level observation of the role of universities, uh, particularly South African universities, and the role they are supposed to be playing in the VUCA world. Uh, Prof, as we proceed, you and I have agreed that governance issues that are bedeviling public universities are worrisome and these are something that, that has been obviously in your space have worked on and continue to work on. But let's get to the deeper understanding of this complex environment. What seems to be at the core of these challenges? Yes, I'm tempted to say that, or rather just to point out that as much as universities can be seen as special, some people might say a privileged sector, who are able to attract a lot of intellectual capital and talent, they are still part of the South African governance and one might also say political landscape, political in many contexts. So they are not immune from some of the pathologies that are present 
and uh, which a lot, a lot, large swaths of our public sector are subject to. This is not an excuse, but maybe just to create a background. One might expect that within this context, universities would do better. And I believe they are doing better than a lot of the public sector. And again, it may be a paradox. Um, without excusing some of the, the issues, and we can in a moment cite some of the reasons for these, these governance challenges. Universities, what happens at universities, the transparency with which it happens, and the fact that in certain instances, in most instances, it tends to get sorted out is actually a good thing. What we get, and again, this is a particularly South African phenomenon, is a lot of these issues don't point towards deep malfunctioning in the basic business, but they point to misbehavior, uh, squabbles, bad actors, actually at, sadly, the governance point and the leadership point and sometimes at the executive management point of our universities. So like much of our public sector, there's a kind of competition for power, for influence, sometimes for economic gain, sometimes for patronage, or sometimes just a kind of vanity of leadership that manifests itself aside from and irrespective of actually the actual interests of the institution, the role and function of that institution and its stakeholders. And unfortunately, it again represents bad behavior by our elites. And that's very sad because it's often few people, it's often people who maybe are not fit and proper to sit on university councils or perhaps people in executive management who are promoted more on promise or on potential or because they have manifested or are seen to have manifested some kind of leadership talent or charisma, but don't really have the substance and I would also say the management ability, the wisdom to run large and complex institutions such as universities. And that sometimes leads to toxic leadership where you have that Leadership talent being emulated, uh, people put in very senior positions, either in governance or management, without necessarily having the requisite experience, the wisdom, the substance, the patience, the diplomacy, and just the noose on how a university is run. Because a university is not a corporate entity, it's also not a government department. It's a different kind of animal and it needs fairly exceptional leadership qualities. And sometimes those are not manifested and people either on the side of council who may not be deeply steeped in the values, mores, the protocols of what universities are all about or on the executive management side where you would think people should be, but they still misbehave on occasion. So sometimes the fault is more with the council, and I would venture to say that is probably the more frequent iteration. But sometimes it's the executive management itself, which has been misbehaving or misdirecting itself. And that also sets up unfortunate interactions and events at that point of governance 
management interaction? Absolutely, Prof. There are a few points that I just want to probe more based on your observation around, obviously, acknowledging that there are a lot of actors, there's competition for influence, there's competition for power, and most of managers that are put there, obviously, they could potentially have a very good sense of posture in articulating themselves, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have what it takes to manage a very complex environment. Isn't that a point of departure when you look at your recruitment template, your recruitment and selection template, the extent to which you bring in people that have what it takes. Bearing in mind that the paradox that you referred to in terms of us having to understand the political landscape, which universities are not immune of, surely by now there's sufficient, when you look at um, what happened at University of Technology, uh, value University of Technology, what happened to Walter Sisulu, what happened to, what happened, what is happening to UNISA now, and the list goes on and on. Surely there has to be some pattern that we, we begin to observe and put forward in terms of well-defined metrics of who goes into council, what sort of criteria is being used to rigorously reinforce the dual of development reform that you alluded to, which seem to be elusive. Yes, absolutely. Statutes determine who is appointed to council. But statutes have to be written, although they vary quite considerably, in quite interesting ways uh, across the South African higher education landscape. Statutes have to be written within the guidelines of the Higher Education Act and various other regulations from the Department of Higher Education and Training pertaining to university governance, which are not bad on paper, except that councils are very large bodies. They're very eclectic bodies. They have a combination of external members who are in the majority, which is members sourced from various sectors, including government representatives who are appointed by government but are not there to represent government. That's a frequent misunderstanding that even sometimes those very delegates do not themselves understand. Captains of industry... Uh, people from professional sectors, also internal members, typically staff representatives, which are sometimes also trade union representatives, who are also not supposed to be representing their constituency, because once you are on council, you are only supposed to represent the interests of the institution. This is often honored in the breach. Members of Senate, members of the executive management, student representatives, Councils are over 30 people. They're very unwieldy. It's a very large committee to have meaningful strategic discussions. Often there's factions on council. There's different interests, disagreements. And yet it's these councils that have to be sufficiently functional in order to basically select the executive management, even though most statutes, if not all, give a voice and a role to other statutory bodies such as Senate, which has its own independent place and voice representing the academic part of the university and is semi-autonomous and not supposed to be subject to being overridden by council on academic matters, although council does not always understand that. Student representatives, a unique South African 
institution that we have called the Institutional Forum, which was a brave attempt to get all these debates that were going on at our different universities, especially 20 years ago when, in fact, there was probably more ferment than there is now, to get them into one body and to channel them as advice to counsel. We then rely on the cohesion and the coherence and the wisdom of counsel to appoint through due processes, as you said, the appropriate people to actually lead the university. This sometimes happens in a reasonable and satisfactory way. I would say, actually, most of the time, it works in a reasonable and satisfactory way. But clearly, and you've alluded to this, there always seem to be two or three universities at any given time who seem to be in some sort of trouble. Whether it's uh, council dissolving into factions, suspending their own chair, resignations, infighting, or whether it's appointment of executive leadership who turn out not to quite have the necessary vision or the necessary aptitudes and skills. And I mean, I think this is an ongoing problem and it's not that it hasn't been addressed, but the fact that we still have regularly administrated assessors being sent to universities, assessors recommending to the minister that councils need to be dissolved, an administrator needs to be sent, and indeed administrators having to be sent having to run the university, at least from a governance perspective for a period, trying to put together a new council, possibly with a new statute, and hoping this time round it's, it's going to work. I really tried hard on two occasions to make statutes fireproof in the sense of constituting council in such a way that it's very difficult for a self-perpetuating group on council to keep appointing subjectively or appointing their cronies and trying to make the way council is put together more objective, having other organizations in society sending people to council rather than council simply selecting those members on whatever criteria, uh, political factionalism, cronyism, business partners. And to some extent, it worked. For example, to some extent, it did work at Limpopo. However, sad to say, some five or six years after I was at VUT, uh, the council plunged into crisis again and another administrator had to be sent. So we do have these perennial crises and the only maybe hope on the horizon is that often issue at the top of the university where things fall apart and remarkably often, if not Almost always. And the media hasn't observed this, I think, to the full extent it could. The actual core business continues to function. Uh, students go to lecturers, academics teach, exams take place, quality assurance standards are in place, people graduate. And, of course, this can't be happening optimally if there's squabbling, dissension or disruption coming from the very people who are meant to be leading you, who are actually disrupting you. But universities have turned out to be very resilient in this way. And although you could say the performance would not be optimal, 
it's remarkable how much business continuity there has been, despite these, um, like I say, this misbehavior at the governance and at the senior leadership level. It's really remarkable um, how none of these virtually in no cases did business actually stop or get disrupted or the academic side could not continue, albeit less optimally or with less quality or with less service to stakeholders than they should have been. Those are quite comforting observations from where you're sitting for you have really uh, seen this kind of issues. And you're on prof, you made reference to statutes which determines who gets appointed. And I do acknowledge the fact that councils get representation from government, business, trade unions, and obviously these interest groups or actor groups, if you like, come to council with a particular mandate in inverted commerce, which often, in my view, uh, suggests a, a disconnect for if you are, if you come through as a union person, if you come through as a government representative, um, forgetting what is your overall objective. Yes, you obviously have an ear and eye for your constituency, but you still have to present in a coherent fashion what is in the best interest of the entity that you're serving at. And that, in my mind, undermines the quality of the conversations which needs to take place within council so that they are less destructive forces. You are able to focus on the, the research aspect of the university. You are able to focus on the profile of, of the university. You are able to focus on strategic direction which universities need to play in the context of VUCA world, as you have now alluded to. What will it take? Is it a more education on the side of these people who comes through representing this minister, that minister, and so on and so forth? What will it take, in your view, to try and get the thinking differently so that we enhance the quality of the conversation? Because if the quality of the conversation is top-notch, you are able to have a firewall on issues that affect executives, which undermines the quality of the core business. I think um, you've alluded to so many key aspects of why university governance in South Africa works, but on too many occasions doesn't work. Putting aside the fact that I mentioned earlier that a body of over 30 people may be not a sensible governance body in which sensible strategic conversation can take place. And there again, is an issue where you have this tendency for councils to become micromanagers, two hands on. Sometimes there is um, bad actors in that people have economic interests. There's uh, tenderization of some council participation. There's patronage where council members interfere in appointments below the level they are meant to, they cause there to be a proliferation of council meetings or council committee meetings. Council is only supposed to meet four times a year, but at universities which pay councils to attend, councillors to attend council meetings or attend council committee meetings or sometimes to attend any university meetings leads to this proliferation. Universities that do not pay their council members often do a lot better because they attract people who are, you could say, 
genuinely wish to serve or simply want to have their membership of a university council on their CV rather than actually financially or in other ways benefit from it. But perhaps the most important point you raised is the fact that according to appropriate and in fact the applicable governance principles, you come, you are appointed from, you could say a constituency. I would prefer to say a sector. So if you are a government employee, a government appointee to a council, you have to understand that you don't represent government. You are simply appointed by government as a fit and proper person. After that, you are not supposed to be reporting back to anybody. You are not the minister's man or woman on council. You have been chosen by government, hopefully because of your profile, your CV, one would hope, but you are not the voice of government in any way. You are simply another council member who needs to apply their mind to the interests of the organization. Likewise, it's something sometimes very difficult to explain to student members or sometimes to employee or trade union uh, council members that they are meant to bring their knowledge, their perspective, their understanding of whatever sector they emanate from, the student sector or the staff, trade unions, because sometimes people try to represent trade unions even beyond the bounds of the university, that in fact they are not there in a representative capacity. They have no mandate from a constituency. They were simply appointed by that constituency. They can bring the knowledge and insight from the sector they are familiar with but they have to apply their mind to every issue as individual council members with the interests of that institution foremost in their minds. This is sometimes, well, it's often explained and sometimes formally or informally, but it's sometimes very difficult for people to internalize in what I would call our South African over-politicized climate. And I say over-politicized because I don't believe that you can ever have complete apolitical institutions, apolitical governance in any jurisdiction, in any society, in the governance of any institution, there will be an element of politics, either politics in terms of a big P and national politics and political parties or small P in terms of organizational institutional politics is always there. But in South Africa, we often bring an over-politicized environment and we sometimes do it um, because of the way our society works and because of the way our elite works. We bring this over-politicization to decision-making and governance in universities. And we, fo- we focus away from what council should be, as you described, the custodian of the strategy, the guarantor of proper performance, of compliance, the champion of good governance, good institutional management, and keeping their eyes on and most of the time their hands off. If councils were able to do that more, we would have less issues. There may be times when executive management becomes the culprit or is misbehaving, and that is the moment where council should become more engaged, but not trying to double-guess executive management as yet another level of management. That is not their role, nor is it their role to get involved in 
financial decision-making, tender decision-making, appointments aside from the executive in which they do have a due and legitimate role or any other matter which goes beyond the level of strategy. And people do know this, Nimrod. I think they understand it, but sometimes they look around and they see how people leverage prominent positioning in other social organizations to their advantage, and they are tempted to do it at the universities. I think that we get a lot of media and we get a lot of attention because often at universities, there are other empowered constituencies, there are other critical constituencies, and they actually fight back. Uh, they go public, and hence we get much more attention on universities, even though, as I said earlier, universities in general are probably better functioning than any other part of the public sector. Yeah, on that note, Prof, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. I'm quite intrigued by some of the issues that you've raised. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. Uh, this is uh, Nimrod Zendele, Beyond Governance at High FM. I am joined by esteemed Professor Patrick Fitzgerald, who is a knowledgeable individual within the higher education space. Before we took that break, a number of issues that he pointed out to one, the fact that council members have to meet like four times. Unfortunately, because of politicization of administration, there is proliferation of their engagement. And he put to us that universities that seem to fare well are those who don't pay their members, which I find very useful observation. And the other issue is university sector representation, not constituency. He sort of changed that. Representations are not necessarily the voices of those uh, who appointed them. You are not the minister's voice or ears. You are there in the best interest of that particular uh, institution. You are not a union rep. You are there to serve what is in the best interest. But clearly, these kinds of segmentation, they're quite fluid, purely because we come from an environment where we seem to politicize every everything that we do, which makes it very difficult for universities to function. The key Observations that despite what happens at council level, the core business of universities, as Prof has pointed out, seems to continue well, which is quite a relief that whatever shenanigans that we pick up at council level, purely because people have got vested interest, they are putting a particular agenda, they are interested in tenders and God know what, those issues don't seem to filter down. That cushion between council and executive uh, and is quite well between council and the core business. It's quite quite useful. One of the issues that you raise, uh, Prof, that I want to probe a little bit more, it is that of assessment of council. I would imagine if the councils were subject to internal and external assessment 
on a regular basis, some of these issues that are, that we, you and I have spoken about can be unearthed and, you know, the council can put together a strategy to mitigate. To what extent in your history, in your, in your experience, council have been subjected to those kinds of internal assessment and external assessment? Yes, a very interesting question. In fact, and this does go about, one might say, the fairly delicate matter that the academic freedom as well as the institutional autonomy of our universities are protected in our constitution. And some South Africans may be surprised or are surprised to learn that our universities are, have considerable academic freedom and institutional autonomy, even in comparison to what is normally termed Western liberal democracies. For example, academics in countries such as France and Germany, which we think about as liberal democracies, are actually civil servants. And um, in Germany, for example, if somebody is appointed as a full professor, it's the Minister of Higher Education who actually signs their appointment letter. We are very lucky, especially in the context of a developing country, to have this institutional autonomy. And hence, government has held back on many issues. It eventually did amend the Higher Education Act to allow for the assessor and then possibly administrative process, um, which has been written quite carefully so as not to totally offend um, the principle of institutional autonomy, but to allow government to be able, hopefully, to responsibly intervene when universities are seen to be in a palpable crisis. However, Nimrod, I can't remember for how many years now, but it is for quite a number of years. It could be well over a decade or 15 years that um, there has been uh, an insistence by the Dohet, uh, whether or not they have the constitutional right, well, nobody has taken that to court, but they do insist that there be a council evaluation process. It is, as it were, to be administered by the council itself, but in an independent manner. So councils often use the Institute of Directors or they use another service provider or firm that operates in that field. And in fact, um, my impression is that Dohet has quite recently become even more proactive in trying to ensure that this council evaluation does take place. I've actually was asked on one occasion at a particular university to facilitate the council meeting at which the evaluation was presented by the provider who, who analyzed the evaluation, which normally takes the form of all council members answering quite a, a long questionnaire about how they believe they are performing, other members are performing, council committees are performing, the council as a whole is performing. And this is supposed to be a self-reflective process of continuous governance improvement. In terms of the principles on which it's based and the methodology or the different methodologies, I don't have any particular criticism or I might favor one more than another, but they're all good and they're all intended to surface the issues that may be preventing well, good governance functioning of a particular council. And I think in some institutions it has assisted, but 
you know, the trouble is with all these mechanisms of good governance, with all these principles of good governance, with all the codes of conduct, with all the leadership training, uh, socialization, with all the management education one does on the executive level and below there, if human beings have specific interests and they don't see fit to be ethical, they don't see fit to put the interests of the institution first, and they do see fit to follow particular either sectarian interests or financial or other interests, they will find a way of undermining those good governance principles. So, yes, the council evaluation process is there. It's been there for some time. It's compulsory. It's probably doing some good in some cases, but in other cases, I'm afraid it it simply doesn't do the job of preventing misbehavior. I couldn't agree with you more uh, there, Prof. Um, I mean, it's quite intriguing that if there are those kind of assessments that are put in place, obviously they are not foolproof, but it's, those are beginning to give a basis in which an assessor who can come, obviously, afterwards could say, look, this, is, this issue has been raised for some time, and this seems to be the glitches that, that are happening at council level. Yes, Nimrod, but when the assessor is knocking at your door, appointed by the minister, you have already failed, sadly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I've read a number of assessors' reports. Generally, I would not criticize government in this instance. Most or perhaps all the assessors that have been appointed, I believe, have been fit and proper people without vested interests. Most of them have given the best reports they can from reasonably objective and well-informed basis. They go around the university, they speak to all the stakeholders, especially those that complain to the minister that caused the assessor to be appointed. A lot of the assessor's recommendations are often written into the terms of um, reference of the administrator when and if an administrator is appointed. But I'm afraid that you already failed. Some councils have even, because the assessor's report is always given to the council to comment on so they can provide a perspective from their position or they can defend themselves. And in some instances, the councils have said, well, we agree with these points. (laughs) Even though the way they were behaving, it did not seem that they did. What a contradiction in terms of Let's take a quick break as we navigate towards the end of the show. We'll be back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance, and I'm joined by Professor Patrick Fitzgerald, a strategist uh, and author, as well as a administrator of universities that uh, were defined dysfunctional. Before we 
took that break. What was interesting was the fact that they there are measures that are in place to assess the performance of the council to his, uh, in respect to the uh, roles and responsibilities as defined in various charters. And that, that observation is quite soothing. But there's also the point about academic freedom and institutional autonomy, which Prof says South Africa fares relatively well compared to other countries. For an example, in Germany, the minister uh, appoints uh, full professors, which is a slightly different case here in South Africa. And the, the last point that Prof raised was the extent to which the assessor's report often suggests that the council or even executive who are found wanting pretty much conclusive, even though those reports are given to the council to defend themselves. The observation from his end is that the councils implicated often agree with the findings of those assessors' report. But here is a very intriguing question for me, Prof. In instances, I mean, when you look at Companies Act, for example, around uh, judgment rule, which dictates that executives and board members in this particular instance have to be fit and proper, have to act in the best interest of the entities, they have to be diligent. And part of being diligent is that whatever decision that you are making, the assumption is that you ought to have read your pack in this particular instance. You ought to have familiarized yourself with the content and the substance of issues that brought to you so that you are able to make an informed decision. In mind, you can only make informed decision on the basis of evidence. And there are beginning, there are insights from in, in, in as far as the failure to apply judgment rule in that um, some board members in the public sector could find, could be criminally liable for their inept, for their misjudgment or for the in, in instances where they have not applied themselves, um, particular those issues. Let's have a scenario. The assessor's report says these issues have been there for some time. You've had internal assessment uh, administered by IODSA or any other of the competent private sector authority, and yet nothing has happened to a point where the, the university is brought under administration. What is the over and about just people resigning and walking away? Are we going to find ourselves in instances where council members are criminally charged for not applying themselves and or for not just applying themselves on critical issues, which has brought universities to its knees? We're talking a billion rand or multi-billion rand institution here. Your take on that, Prof? I imagine we're a very long way away from that just to briefly give some background. Well, the universities are not companies, so they are not subject to the Companies Act, nor strictly speaking, are they subject to the King principles? Um, although most of the King principles are applicable because of the way councils are constituted under different sets of legislation, not all the King principles work. However, universities are subject to analogous or parallel sets of governance and ethical precepts that are not in any way fundamentally different from what is expected of board members. So in that way, you're substantially correct. Uh, For example, um, you mentioned the duties of a board member and likewise a member of the university council to read their pack, to diligently apply their mind, to act without prejudice in the interests of the organization, etc. You know, speaking off the record, on the record, uh, in my experience of um, 
being on um, uh, councils and um, chairing one council. Like many such organizations, you you get a, a, a spectrum of council members. You very soon pick up which of them are diligent and come informed and have properly read their pack and which come hardly having even opened it. Whether it's a hard copy pack or an electronic copy, you can see them trying to get to the right page while the issue is being raised on the agenda. They clearly haven't read a word or frantically searching through their laptop to see if they can click on the right document. And, you know, you get that spectrum, especially when you have so many people and unlike a, a company board made up in a very eclectic way from many different constituencies. However, I'm not sure whether this will surprise you or not. I think there's there's normally a sufficient critical mass of people who have informed themselves and are able to discuss the topics. But it may be that actually some of the, the best informed people can be some of those more likely to misbehave. That's also a sad thing. Sometimes those who misbehave have made sure they have they're well informed and they have a lot of intelligence and they actually have contacts and connections. They often a sign of a bad actor on council is somebody who goes over the head of executive management, has email contacts, has conversations, has meetings, demands information from, let's say, middle managers or from senior managers, uh, not on the executive who they should not be in contact with. So, Sadly, being on the ball, which, of course, all council members should be, is not a guarantee of good governance action. In fact, sometimes it's an indication of mischief and other agendas and, in fact, two hands on other than just eyes on. So I wouldn't say in certain instances councils have been incompetent, but I would say where they mainly go wrong is not primarily due to being incompetent or misinformed or lacking intelligence. In fact, executive management are at council meetings and they're often able to provide relevant, fresh, accurate information on the spot, but more because of agendas other than the interests of the institution. Will anybody actually be criminally charged? My goodness, the things people do in South Africa across the board and don't get criminally charged, I imagine it will be 300 years before any university council member faces that destiny. And then let's take a last break, Prof. We'll be wrapping up with this very interesting conversation. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research. The science of decision-making. 
This is Beyond Governments. Um, uh, we unfortunately have to wrap up. We've got a very interesting conversation with uh, Professor Patrick Fitzgerald uh, in his capacity as a strategist in administrators of, of universities. We, in a way, reflecting on the malfeasance that are quite pronounced in, in most of the universities, particularly at the governance level. Prof, you're parting short on this very glorious and complex, um, you know, conversation, which I think you and I need to unpack further, uh, given opportunities. My parting shot, Nimrod, is I wish I did have the silver bullet in my hands or, and I would be able to shoot it, uh, by writing an article or, um, holding a workshop and saying, guys, this is how we can eliminate bad governance from the university sector. And I wish I could, because I not only love the university sector, but I objectively value it as the most valuable asset we currently have in terms of our developmental intentions. Um, amidst much chaos and confusion and VUCA, and and discontent and bad government. The universities have, and I, I know I'm repeating myself from my opening comments, held up remarkably well and continue to produce skills, uh, educated but more even as important critical citizens. I think our university sector is one or it's a a, a thin line that separates us from many other emerging economies and democracies and and gives us a fighting chance of actually building that equitable non-racial democracy that a lot of people forgot that we set out to build in 1994. But I think that we we must persevere uh, with uh, insisting on good governance, insisting on these various measures, many of which you have alluded to and directly raised. We must persist in allowing the media uh, to report freely and openly when university governance does mess up uh, and w- when there are perhaps assessors' reports that eventually go into the public domain in due course where, where administrators are sent, um, u- universities need to be sorted out there needs to be, as you alluded to, the best possible selection of executive leadership. People who select uh, council members need to do so more responsibly and with less over-politicization. And we just need to keep up the pressure until we can get these governance principles more embedded, more ingrained, more understood, so that our university sector can not only continue its good work, but to do that work much more optimally than it's often allowed to do currently. Rob, thank you very much for your insights, um, wisdom, which which I certainly believe the listener have benefited from. And thank you very much for gracing Beyond Governance. My pleasure. Uh, very nice to be talking to you. Absolutely. There you go. That was Professor Patrick Fitzgerald giving us uh, his insight, wisdom, and observations on a very complex uh, the landscape of universities. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. We're going to leave it here. Shalom. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. 
It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making.